all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fossone. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about EisenhowerCenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. We want to thank VetBiz Central, which is part of the U.S. Small Business Association, VBOC, Vet Business Outreach Centers. VetBiz Central covers Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio, and can be reached at VetBizCentral.org. Let's move on to our programs. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Mike Lechleitner. Mike is a uh, Army veteran. He's a DOD employee currently, and he's got an interesting story to tell about a base over in uh, Uzbekistan that you may or may not have heard of, often referred to as K2 because the name's almost impronounceable. But, Mike, welcome to Veterans Radio. Hey, Jim. Thank you very much. Well, let's start with this. How did a nice guy, uh, how did Mike find himself in the Army? I graduated from high school with the lowest GPA of the class president (laughs) and president of the vice president of the activities student council. (laughs) So this was clearly your your path forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it greatly helped me out later in life. And then after that, I came back back to Ann Arbor um, and uh, went to University of Michigan. And um, you served from uh, 1978 to 1981 and were a communications uh, specialist. And, and uh, tell us where you were stationed. I was actually, yeah, I was stationed in uh, uh, Augsburg, Germany, at uh, Field Station Augsburg, which was a um, NSA Army Signal or Army uh, Security Agency site um, in, uh, down by Munich. So it was a great, great, great time. Well, and we won't even talk about how much German beer you consumed during that tour. Uh, Oktoberfest was always a highlight. <laughs> well, not, not every assignment's quite as uh, enjoyable, but that one can be. So that that's great. Uh, you came back, uh, went uh, on to college, uh, got involved in uh, similar intelligence sort of things, and 
as a DOD employee, it's about uh, 2001, I think it is, you find yourself being sent off to Uzbekistan. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Serving as an executive officer in one of my uh, organizations, and uh, we were, of course, responding to the 9-11 attack and uh, volunteered uh, to go to the next place that came up and uh, was told you're going, asked where, was told we can't tell you, (laughs) Um, and then did a a couple of long plane rides and landed in the middle of the night in Karshi Khanabad, uh, Uzbekistan, which is uh, one of the former Soviet republics and located uh, where the base was, was located about 90 miles north of the northern border of Afghanistan. Yeah, let's set this up for folks because most of us couldn't find Uzbekistan on a map. As you say, it's one of the former Russian stands, there's uh, four or five of them. Um, they are not far from Afghanistan. They kind of have China as a neighbor, certainly Russia as a neighbor. I mean, it's kind of crowded right in there in the uh, mid-Asia hotspots, I suppose. Well, yeah, you're correct. It is one of the one of the stands: Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. That's the one closer to China. Uh, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan all border another stand, and that being Afghanistan. So it's the it was the southern uh, stands or southern states or provinces or whatever you want republics actually what the Soviets called them uh, in the former Soviet Union. In, in it, they're north of uh, Afghanistan as you mentioned, and they're kind of north of Iran. Uh, they're west of China and south of Russia as we try to frame this for people, the Caspian Sea's kind of uh, there on the west a little bit, and, and um, it, it's a uh, uh, country that has a population of about 34 million people, um, it's 90% uh, uh, Muslim, it has a long history, uh, world history, you know, looking at Alexander the Great and the Mongols and Genghis Khan before the Russians kind of took it over during the 19... 19- Hundreds, nineteen hundred to maybe nineteen ninety, the Soviet Union falls apart. Uzbekistan and the other stands all kind of become independent states at that point. Um, so it's a it's an interesting place. How is it that the United States ended up at this uh, particular base, awaiting whatever was going to happen down in Afghanistan some twenty years ago? Important thing to remember is any time you do a military operation is. Uh just like real estate, location, location, location. Um, the Karshi Khanabad, or K2, was actually one of the last, or was the last main Soviet Soviet base uh, before going into Afghanistan when they had their long, uh, long debacle there as well. So that base had already served as the jumping-off point for units going into Afghanistan when the unit members were named Ivan and Boris. <laughs> um, so um, it was an obvious location for where the U.S. would want to go, and through an, an agreement with the Uzbekistan government, um, a quick survey was done immediately after 9-11, and uh, special operators began arriving there with me um, within uh, middle of October of 2001. And it served as a jump-off point for a 
lot of operations in northern Afghanistan that got the Taliban out of there in about 100 days and put uh, bin Laden in a cave um, up in Tora Bora. And uh, a lot's been written about it, and not so much the base itself, but the operations that started from there. That's the, the movie that came out with the, uh, what was it called, Horse horse Soldiers or something like that, with the guys on horseback, you know, fighting off the Taliban using uh, forward air controllers. Yep, yep. Um, Mike Spann um, was based there before he went downrange, one of our first casualties in the war there at uh, Mozart Sharif. And uh, so it was, again, location, location, location. And just to frame this a little bit, um, K-2, this former Soviet base, was used by the U.S. from about 2001 to 2005. And I think I saw somewhere something like 15,000, I assumed it's 15,000 U.S. troops pass through K-2. That may or may not include civilians like yourself, but but that's sort of the time frame and the group of folks who came through K-2, as I understand it. Does that sound about right? Yeah, uh, the numbers are very iffy. Uh, originally, the Department of Defense and the VA came out with uh, only about 5,000 were there. Um, the, my orders when I went to Southwest Central Asia, that's all my orders said. They were not specific, and that was true for many of the Special Forces operators. Our orders were very vague. Uh, so it was difficult many years later to backtrack and figure out exactly how many uh, stayed there for any length of time. And then also complicating the fact is that as a logistics base and an air base, there were a lot of air crews that went in and out of there and stayed only a short time. So the number has gone up from originally an estimate of about 5,000 up to 15,000. But it's going to be dependent on the duration within that larger number of was this just an air crew transiting and how long were they exposed to stuff there. Yeah, and, and let me set this up too, that because I'm gonna, my next comments. I don't want to get uh, Mike in trouble here. M- Mike's here as a DoD employee um, who who spent some time at K2 and has been involved in trying to get uh, VA and Congress to recognize the Department of Defense to recognize um, some of the challenges at K2 that I'm going to have him talk about here. But he's he's not here giving. Uh, any endorsements, uh, any, any political opinions uh, on behalf of anybody but uh, himself. He's not endorsing any of uh, the veteran radio sponsors. He's not taking political positions between different administrations. This is a discussion about what he saw, what he knows, and, and kind of trying to inform our veteran radio listeners about a place that they've probably never heard of, K2 in Uzbekistan, so that you can be educated about uh, the situation. And when you land at the base, Mike, nobody's thinking about uh, toxic base problems. and It's just not something you think about or they think about in the middle of the... And at some point after you leave K2, when do you become aware of or start thinking about, boy, there there were some problems there and maybe... Yeah, there were some problems. We'll start off with the problems that occurred there and then how I basically finally got back around to this um, almost 20 years later. Um, We had a long uh, C-17 flight uh, from the U.S. uh, to K-2. We were uh, too heavy to take off fully loaded and uh, not enough priority for an in-flight, so we uh, 
stopped around the world, and about the 15 of us on the plane with all of our equipment picked up a few uh, additional passengers. And uh, uh, the U.S. government never goes to war without a lawyer, and one of them was a JAG. Well, that's we have a good we have a good union. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, so he was on a long flight that we circled the globe and made many stops on, and got to know him at least by name and. We started off doing our separate jobs, um, and I was in a different area of the little small area. First thing is, we didn't own the whole base. The Americans were confined to an area roughly only about 40 acres on, on the base, and when I mean, you think of an air base, that's huge. I mean, the area that we were in was small, but an air base is huge. So we were corralled into a very small area, um, and... Uh, the government, or us, decided for force protection measures um, that we needed a berm around our, our area. So uh, one of the, I guess one of the first jobs that the JAG had was to arrange for local, local contractors um, to bring in equipment. And in Uzbekistan, a lot of that equipment was some guy with a shovel and uh, start building a berm around the roughly 40 acres in which we were to live in. And the area we were to live in had no housing, was all dirt, uh, was being improved by uh, U.S. military Corps of Engineers and CB-type folks daily, uh, attempting to get a camp up on a little piece of this airbase. So back to the JAG, uh, I just continued, or concluded some night operations and was coming back for some needed sleep when he stopped me walking across our little 40 acres and said, Mike, I'd like your help. Um, I know you can reach back to Washington. Um, I've hired some contract workers to dig the berm around the place or build the berm around the place, and they're falling over getting sick. So I said, well, I can see what I can do. So then we met with, they had a series of um, areas where I would call back to Washington and try and get information on the base history and what was where and what in various locations around the base and what was there, its history, so to speak, and then relay that on to the JAG where he could make some determinations about what they should do about the work and the workers. Um, that raised some attention and almost Within a week of me being there working with him, uh, he introduced me to another guy, and this one was uh, another military officer, and he was from the Center of Health and Preventive and Protective Medicine Europe out of UCOM, and he and a team were environmental specialists that were going to do a survey of the base. Now, this was our, our area at the base. Now, remember, this is after we've already been there and are growing every day. So the first survey was not done before we got there. It was done while we were getting there and building there. So I relayed the various information on the basis history to the Chippens officer on a daily basis while he and his team went out and surveyed. And I also recommended areas where they could do some soil samples and do some test digging to see what was in the dirt and uh, what was making the workers sick. Um, the area smelled much like the Soviet Union would, uh, but uh, there's definitely a smell of petroleum in the 
aired to begin with, but that would be expected to be at a at a at a jet base. Um, but it was bad. And, and that, that's right. I mean, you would expect a certain amount of contamination or toxic exposure at any uh, Air Force base, uh, jet fuel and what have you. But it wasn't that. It was. It, it turned out uh, over time to determine that there had this had been a chemical weapons decontamination unit uh, involved Correct, yeah. here. We went through a series of things where I became Mr. Bad News. I was identifying these areas based on both the Chipham's team and the information we got back from Washington on the base's history. So, for example, we when we started off about, well, it could be jet fuel that's making these guys sick, we dug a test hole, and after about eight feet down, a uh, gold-colored liquid started rising up to the surface that uh, was smelled enough to be flammable. And that was because the Soviets had had a jet fuel pipeline under the area we had been in that had been leaking for 30 years. So basically the soil was saturated with jet fuel. Then we dug another test hole behind one of their maintenance hangars, um, and that uh, came up with the, rose up with the infamous black goo, and that was because the Soviets had dumped all their um, petroleum distillates, their POL, their hydraulic fluid, anything from an aircraft uh, directly behind the hangar, which was running through the water table that ran to our base, which was literally 25 feet away. And that brings us back to where where was your water for uh, cooking, was, bathing, for, consumption? Right. At the time, everything was coming in on the back of a C-17, including bottled water. Later, they brought they built in a filtration plant, which I understand through uh, follow-on sources um, within the Camp Stronghold Freedom Foundation org, which is the group of the K-2 veterans that have banded together. Uh, there was some water quality problems with the filtration unit, obviously, that the, that the Army brought in as well. But that was much later, after the base became a real base. And, so and it, didn't, it didn't with, stop there with those chemical exposures? Or, no, it did not. Yeah. So we had the hole with the golden, golden oil coming up. We had the hole with the black goo. And then information came back from Washington that a Soviet decontamination unit had been active at the airfield back when the Soviets owned it. That's very rare. Uh, nobody likes to spray chemicals on an airplane to decontaminate them. It tends to make the airplanes and the bombs not work very well. Uh, so a decontamination unit at an airbase uh, was suspect. Uh, the decontamination unit is a mobile unit, so it was brought in or flown in from somewhere. It was not a local base asset. And the thing to remember was this happened during the Soviet incursion into Afghanistan, and there were press reports and later confirmed through a national intelligence estimate that the Soviets had used chemical weapons in Afghanistan. That national intelligence estimate has been declassified under Freedom of Information Act and is available, and states that the Soviets used some type of chemical weapons in that in their actions against the Afghan Afghanistan uh, Taliban, etc. And all of that um, de- all that decontamination again paint the picture for our listeners here, Michael Lechner. You're just washing this stuff down. You're washing it off the plane, but it's just 
it's not being it's captured and somewhere. treated. It's just going into the ground, right? Correct. And decontaminant, as most chemical warfare officers have told me, the decontamination agents they use aren't the most friendliest things in the world either. So just because you use decontamination agent doesn't mean you clean it. It means you get the really bad stuff off and leave some not-so-bad stuff behind. So that was an operation. Um, and then uh, we, so uh, so I had to brief the folks at the base that uh, POL, chemical, and then um, the CHIPMS team, that Center for Health and Preventive Medicine team, actually met with and toured with the Uzbeki base officials. And they told the CHIPMS team the information that I had as well, that after the fall of the Soviet Union, of course, now the Uzbeki Air Force owns the base, and that a portion of our base that we were on, the 40 acres, a portion of that was actually a part of an air-to-surface missile uh, depot, an ammunition depot. That depot uh, blew up uh, in 94, in 1994. And the explosion took out uh, major buildings and storage areas all across the depot and blew up uh, ordnance and pieces of ordnance all over the area in which we were living and which, in which the berm was being constructed with. Well, this is why that 40 acres was available. Uh, yeah, at a discount. Um, so, um, in addition, the Uzbeks uh, told the Chippums officer that, and you got to remember, after the fall of the Soviet Union, everybody was grabbing what they could uh, to sell, uh, that the Uzbeks informed the Chippums team that the local Uzbek, uh, you want to call it warlord or ex-former Soviet boss, was storing yellow cake uranium at uh, the depot. It was a secure place, and... We're going to come back and get some more first-hand information from uh, Mike Lechner, Ann Arbor native, who was at K2 in Uzbekistan at the start of the Afghan war in October 2001 to January 2002, and help you learn about how these toxic base problems and the exposures that our military has uh, to them and and uh, really make you think about uh, what the nation owes the, the men and women who had such exposures. But let's uh, hear some more from a couple of our sponsors and then we'll get back to the program. This is Dale Throneberry from Veterans Radio with an important announcement for you, our loyal listeners. In partnership with U.S. Wings, we are bringing back our monthly flight jacket giveaway. Beginning right now, you can win a Top Gun Maverick flight jacket. This is U.S. Wings' recreation of the exact CWU jacket worn in the upcoming Top Gun 2 Maverick movie. It is made from military-grade satin nylon. The patches on the jacket are authentic military patches supplied to Paramount Pictures for the Top Gun movie. This jacket could be yours. All you have to do is register to win. Go to veteransradio.net, click on the flight jacket, and register to be in the drawing to win this month's Top Gun flight jacket. The winner will be announced on our monthly benefits program, which is the last program of each month. Don't miss out on your chance to win this incredible U.S. Wings Top Gun flight jacket. Go to veteransradio.net and register now. 
Are you a veteran or a military spouse interested in starting or growing an existing business? Then you want to connect with VetBiz Central, Michigan's only veteran business resource center, providing free one-on-one business counseling services, including research plans and preparing veterans to be lender-ready. If you're in business, VetBiz Central offers comprehensive strategic marketing strategies to help you connect to corporations. They are one of 20 centers nationwide devoted to veteran business development through the U.S. Small Business Administration Office of Veteran Business Development. Vets helping vets. Visit their website at vetbizcentral.org or call 810-767-VETS. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative, maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. Even small actions can make a world of difference. If you know a veteran in crisis, please call the Veterans Crisis Line, 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. And and let me frame this again, uh, Mike, uh, for folks. Yellow cake's refined uh, uranium ore, and you might say, well, why is that there? Well, Uzbekistan is or was one of the most important sources of Russian uranium supplies up until its independence in 1991, and the country is still the seventh largest uranium supplier in the world. So it makes some sense that this was available in the region. That's correct. And more alarming, but hopefully nothing ever happened, we were also 90 miles from Iran. So anyways, they were storing some valuable stuff in that depot, and through a series of sympathetic detonations, when the depot blew up, it destroyed the depot and spread out over the area in which uh, we were setting up our little 40-acre camp. Uh, also, um, as the Chippums team, so the Chippums team discovered yellow cake. It was handed to me in a marked baggie. Um, and you know, hey, do you know what this is? No, it's yellow cake. What the heck is it doing here? Uh, got the explanation. And why in the hell did you just hand it to me in a baggie? It's not short term, you know, it's very low grade. Um, it's, it's, it's the first step up from raw uranium, so to speak. So it is safe to handle, but you not necessarily want to be around it for a long time and drew, and, and particularly breathe dust of it. Uh, which the whole base, if you think of the desert, that's kind of what it looked like anyways, uh, was dusty. So the other thing the Uzbeks told them, or I'm sorry, that the Chippems team discovered, they discovered fragments of depleted uranium uh, in in around the depot and around our area. And this was, again, due to the explosion because there had been uh, depleted uranium munitions stored in the depot, and when they blew up, uh, they fragmented and uh, were spread out. Uh, also, when the depot blew up, uh, it was an air-to-surface missile depot. Uh, much of the missile components, which makes sense when you're firing something with a fire at the end of it, uh, contained asbestos and other types of materials. So all that was blew up and spread all over the area in which we were living in. And also, more importantly, it was a prime source for the soil that was being used to, conduct, to construct the berm that surrounded this on three sides. Now, you, you get there in um, late 2001. How long are you there, Mike? Um, well, 
I got there the second week in October, and as much like we expected, we came to Afghanistan and kicked butt, and there wasn't much left for us to do, at least in this initial campaign of you know, removing the Taliban government and hopefully getting bin Laden. That didn't quite work out right. But um, well, I was out of there by uh, geez, uh, just after January 2002, so I was only there about three months. Now, the base continued... That's my point. <laughs> until 2005, and people stayed there longer because it became a logistical base for operations further south in Afghanistan, just like the Soviets did. So in those first two or three months, all of this information is coming out about the uh, history, the toxic base history of K2, and, um, you know, for uh, military strategic reasons, they continue to use it uh, for the next uh, roughly th- three, or, three or four years. That's correct, yeah. We actually were asked to leave Uzbekistan by the Uzbekistan government when we didn't agree with their human rights record. So we, w- we were forced to leave in 2005. Uh, there was the initial CHIPMS, the Center for Health and Preventive Medicine survey, that, was, that I contributed to or helped provide some info- information to, uh, in um, in 2001, there was a follow-on visit and more comprehensive survey done. I remember my dates here correctly, 2002, 2003, toward right in the middle there, like the beginning of 2003, where they did some additional soil studies. And there were also then reports of... Um, nerve gas being detected by the chemical detection readers that were set up at the base as the base became more established uh, and the closure of one of the hardened aircraft bunkers where uh, the detectors went off and then a decontamination of that by U.S. forces uh, I think it was in 2004. So the base had gained somewhat of a reputation as not the cleanest place in the world, um, beginning in 2001, all through uh, its eventual closure in 2005. So this sets up the what was happening at K2 in 2001 and why today it's a concern as a toxic base and a concern for those who got stationed there, maybe as 15,000 or so uh, soldiers, uh, we appreciate this information, uh, Mike Leitner. And if you have time, I'd like to now talk about moving on to the efforts to recognize the impact of, of those toxic exposures uh, to the uh, uh, military service members who pass through there. We're talking to we're talking to Mike Leitner, who is a uh, Army veteran who's now a DOD employee, and back in 2001 uh, was one of the uh, early folks to end up at a base in Uzbekistan, commonly known as K2. He's told us about the toxic concerns that were raised in those early uh, months uh, of use of this base, which was a former Soviet air base. And uh, we've talked about uh, golden oil coming out of the ground and black goo and decontamination, chemical decontamination units, and the Ordnance Depot explosion and identifying of yellow cake and depleted uranium. Really a toxic brew, as many people would call it. And 
uh, over time, there was a recognition that there were uh, potentially health effects from those who were stationed there and exposed there between this period of 2001 to 2005. And, and this has picked up a national um, interest, uh, interest in Congress, um, and I think there's kind of a recognition that uh, the VA, and I'll, I'll quote uh, Senator Baldwin here, who, who said the VA should avoid repeating past mistakes like it did in Viet- with Vietnam veterans and quickly move forward with recognition and coverage for the, any diseases associated with exposure to toxic substances such as depleted uranium. But it hasn't been easy to get the information out or, the, or any recognition by DOD, VA, or Congress. Uh, Mike, you've been in, pulled into this uh, effort. Can you talk to us about sort of what's gone on to try to get some recognition here? Sure. Um, probably the best way would be the way I found out about it. You know, I, I moved on in life after that. Um, an important thing to remember that many of the illnesses that seem to be occurring are those of uh, that take a while to develop. Uh, these are cancers um, and some issues with the, the females that were assigned there, reproductive issues. Um, it just takes a while for the effects to, to give a notice. And I went on with my life and was pretty much um, um, knew the base was closed and thought, well, that's great. Nobody's got to be there in that you know crap hole anymore. And never really thought about the health effects. And then COVID hit, and um, the director of my agency, um, as part of our COVID thing, said, "Let's do buddy checks. Let's talk to people who you know were an impact on our lives, and we want to make sure they're okay." And so last Memorial Day uh, weekend, I got to thinking about it, and I went out online and found the Camp Stronghold Freedom Foundation organization dot org, and uh, their associated website on Facebook on Karshi, and found that a lot of folks uh, were getting sick, had been uh, or had already died due to rare cancers and uh, got in contact with the group uh, to ask to join, and they said, we need to talk to you uh, after the, you answer some of the questions as to why you want to join the group. I did so, um, and then began uh, this effort. So literally almost we're not even up to a year of, of my involvement with it. Uh, what I found is a VA uh, that uh, has decided that Karshi Khanabad did not support uh, the efforts against the Taliban in 2001 in terms of VA benefits because it was in Uzbekistan. It was 90 miles away from Afghanistan. But that magic border uh, has caused many of the veterans to pay out of their own pocket for uh, treatment or uh, discovery and diagnosis of uh, illnesses that have happened uh, because they were exposed there. And several medical doctors uh, have verified that based on the patients they've seen and was the subject of a CBS News story that I contributed to with Catherine Herridge uh, and that showcased one of the veterans uh, in a wheelchair in Florida. Uh, and all the diagnoses and everything came out of his own pocket, VA not paying for it, because we are 90 miles off the border at one of the most contaminated Soviet bases there was and the Soviets are well known for contaminating. So we've moved through the process now for this last year with several appearances on the Capitol Hill. John Stewart 
the comedian has joined in our, our efforts as well as part of a larger effort on burn pits. Uh, we had one too, by the way, at K2. Everybody's got a burn pit. Um, and uh, so we've been trying to move this through the VA uh, to get them to recognize it, and they've come back with just consistently, well, we need more study, which goes against right with uh, you have with your senator's comment about if you wait long enough and do a study, you won't need to do a study anymore because they'll be dead. Yeah, a- absolutely. That, that's certainly what the Vietnam veterans feel on Agent Orange is they had, have had to fight tooth and nail to move Agent Orange from on the boots on the ground in Vietnam to the rivers, the brown water Navy, to the blue water Navy just recently by legislation. But but Agent Orange was all over the place. It was in the it was in Korea, it was in Thailand, it was in Guam. Not all those folks and it was in the United States. Not all those bases have been recognized as uh, connecting to Agent Orange exposure. So it's a legitimate concern to say, geez, we'll just ignore the exposures at K2, and if we ignore them long enough, the pool of potential applicants gets, and those exposed gets smaller and smaller. So I think the efforts of those who've passed through there can look back at that history and say, we have a legitimate concern for why we're pushing so hard. Yeah, and it's not been answered either through the VA or the DOD. Uh, their last congressional testimony appearance was a joke. Uh, it is clear that they, based on their testimony, that they did not talk to each other. The DOD providing the base history to the VA and the VA saying we need more study. And then actually in one particularly, I want to say sadly, hilarious instance, the VA doctor saying, well, yeah, we didn't. We can't find the yellow cake that the Chipham's team found. And oh, by the way, we're not really concerned about the depleted uranium because when the depot exploded, the berm would have absorbed it, meaning the DU <laughs> fragments. That's pretty hilarious in the fact that that berm was not built until we built it. So it must have been a magic berm to contain the depleted uranium that was spread all over the base and then we all um, managed to be working around uh, for uh, you know, the next five, six years when we were there. And, and, and again, let me set this up that uh, you know Mike Leitner is here in his individual capacity having experienced this. He's currently a DOD employee, but he's not here endorsing any political opinions or any sponsors of Veterans Radio He's just trying to get the facts out as he knows them, and and Mike, one of the you know one of the concerns we've often seen is and, and it's true today with PFAS contamination at Air Force bases that VA won't act on this stuff because they need more studies or they've got to have um, a medical nexus for which there isn't enough uh, research going on to be able to provide it, and an average doctor can't. So, so you almost have to get Congress involved to move these issues along so that Congress tells VA to act. And, and that's a little bit of what's going on here with K2. Tell us. Well, we were unsuccessful on the 116th Congress to get a bill actually through. However, it was a bipartisan proposal slash bill that just didn't make it to a vote in the last Congress. And this Congress, again, Congressman Mark, uh, Green of Tennessee and Lynch of Massachusetts, bipartisan, have instituted legislation that all legislatures, or I'm sorry, all your listeners, after you research the issue, 
um, and want to support and could call your congressman and their aides and tell them, please support H.R. Uh, 1355, which grants presumptive status to uh, folks that were deployed to K2 for a, a set list of illnesses which are all related to toxic exposure. Over in the Senate, uh, I'm sorry the senator's name escapes me, but it's also bipartisan. There's a bill, Senate Bill 454, which does the same thing. And let me point out, these bills would not impact you at all because you were there as a civilian, not not as a military service member. Absolutely correct, and I'm just fortunate that uh, you know, and you know, thank God my my health is okay um, so far. Um, And but even if passed, I would have no, I have no dog in this fight uh, personally. So uh, in terms of any benefits received by me, 15,000 people at the best estimate, large large estimate by the VA. And uh, so we'll go forward from there. And and I'll highlight, you know, some of the, I'll give you a little background on some of the problems that vets are currently having. Because K2 wasn't recognized as being in the theater of operations, they weren't in any database where they could register their illnesses because their site didn't show up. So it wasn't geolocated to where illnesses could be tagged to. After it started to get a little more attention and a almost obsessive interest in the VA on depleted uranium, ignoring the yellow cake and the possibility of a yellow cake inhalation, they then reluctantly agreed that, well, one of the things we could do is offer any vet that says they were at K2 a depleted uranium urine test if individual VA offices knew even to offer it, which they didn't because they didn't put out a communique about it. Next, if you managed to know about it and requested a test, you would send your urine in a gallon milk jug to a facility in Baltimore, in Maryland, the only one in the U.S. that the VA had to do the studies, and that was closed due to COVID. Get data to do a study or their ability to get data, at least on the DU, on its effects, um, was non-existent because they couldn't do any tests. Mike, let me also bring up that um, there was some positive movement in 2020 on this issue, in that uh, President Trump signed an executive order that recognizes veterans who served at a, at this toxic base and kind of mandates a comprehensive study of health consequences, which is everybody's always their first step. Let's do a study. But but tell us, right. did did that executive order get repealed? What else has come up in the in the last six months that kind of has moved this forward some? For the last six months, there was also the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the Department of Defense funding bill. And in that, Congress inserted that a study must be done and completed in six months. It was not, it was, even though its speed was good, its study parameters was a little vague. And prior to President Trump leaving office, he signed an executive order that stated a study must be done and completed in six, or I'm sorry, in 12 months that was more complete in terms of toxic effect and history. Um, and to my knowledge, uh, and I'm not involved in the process, but I have not been contacted since I'm an eyewitness, so to speak. Uh, I do not know the status of the um, government's response to both the NDAA and the executive order. But the executive order has not been rescinded 
and it appears the Biden administration is very supportive, supportive and as, as you recall, uh, the president's son, uh, Bo Biden, died of brain cancer, which uh, the president, Biden, has stated that he believes was uh, could have been caused by uh, Bo's exposure to burn pits uh, in Iraq. So he's aware of the toxic uh, ramifications. So, so there's this um, two studies that are supposed to occur, sort of a little bit different in each timing and parameter wise. We don't know if they're started. Um, there are a couple of bills in the current Senate, uh, HR 1355 and Senate Bill or SB 454. As you say, people can write their senators or their congressmen or women and tell them to support these two things to try to move that along because what that'll do, if I understand this right, correct me if I'm wrong, if Congress says these are presumptive diseases, then we skip by all the importance of stu- you know the studies and trying to having an expert on both sides. One says yes, one says no. These bills will move this right to hey, these diseases that veterans are experiencing are to be presumptive. Is is that what the bills talk about? You're absolutely correct, Jim. Um, the, the legislation that would be the holy grail in terms of it would be granted as presumptive status meaning it, that if you came up or came down with, excuse me, uh, one of the diseases or cancers on the list that, that, that is known to be associated with toxic exposure, you do not have to prove that that's where you got it from. It basically says it, it accepts that you as a service member was a, uh, assigned to an area that was so toxic and you ended up getting this, we don't necessarily need you to prove, which was always the onus on the vets, which made it difficult, that that's where you got it from. So presumptive status allows the vet to say, I got cancer, it's this type of cancer, it was at, and I was deployed to this base, help me out. So I want to encourage our veteran radio listeners to write their congressmen and women, write their senators, talk about this issue and that's why we're doing this show is to kind of bring this to public attention it had an impact before it got at least the the then president to execute an an executive order it's gotten it uh, into the uh, defense act last year for the study and it's gotten new bills up uh, potential bills up uh, in the current congress but that's what public exposure and pressure really does in a political process those are my words, not Mike. I'm not trying to get him in trouble. But but that's that's what we're you know that's a call a call to action, Mike. If there are people out there who are interested in this issue for any number of reasons, uh, maybe they have their own toxic based problem that this ties back into. How how do they track this issue? You've mentioned a website. Oh yeah, uh, the the camp strongholdfreedomfoundation.org. Uh, and the Stronghold Freedom Foundation is all one word, dot org, uh, is the organization, it's a 501, uh, so a charitable, uh, of K2 veterans um, that um, supports not just this issue, but some tangential, uh, that being like uh, family members of uh, deceased K2 veterans uh, or those needing um, attention brought on them 
by the strength of the organization to the VA in individual cases. And then, of course, their big item of uh, getting this K-2 legislation passed. The site also has uh, the listings of the documents. It also has the interviews. It has the testimony uh, uh, links to C-SPAN, where you can see what the DOD or the VA is saying about it in, in testimony to Congress. Um, and so that's a great first place to uh, take a look. And then from there, uh, they have other websites listed where you can get assistance uh, for all kinds of uh, traditional veterans issues as well. Well, and, and again, this is, a you know, you, you mentioned, hey, uh, K2 had its own burn pit problems. But there are a lot of bases that, that have some, maybe not all of these exposures. And K2 was a small base used for a definitive period of time. A smaller number of troops went through it. So if you can get some of these presumptions and recognitions for K2, where the math doesn't get too scary for the VA's budget, um, I think that helps all the other bases say, hey, I had this burn pit problem, which is big in Afghanistan, but unfortunately huge in numbers and is harder to move along. So it seems to me, at least, that you could move this one along because it's so definable but that may help others, and that's why I recommend to veteran radio listeners, if these are issues of interest to you and your family members, visit CampStrongholdFreedomFoundation.org, and it may help you and on your particular exposure or base issue as well. And again, that's uh, my commentary, not uh, not Mike's. We're not trying to get him in into trouble, but you... I think you described yourself as sort of a K2 witness. You, you know, you were there from day one, essentially, and it makes it puts you in a unique role, doesn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, it's been an experience. Uh, you know, like this. I kept running through the Forrest Gump movie through my head here. Just you know, right place at the right time, and then many years later, sadly, uh, becoming aware of the issue, and then coming back to see what I can do about helping. Um, but um, just happened to be there and was able to give information uh, to both the Chippums team and the JAG, um, and and some of that lost in the bureaucracy uh, many years later, um, and some of it maybe not want to be shown by the bureaucracy many years later. So I'm glad to be able to help out uh, those who served. And when we went through with John Stewart, um, his uh, first responder act uh, for the 9-11 group uh, that re- responded to the World Trade Center. I was talking to him, and he's now kind of using this as a line as well. Um, I'm especially proud of the K-2 group. Um, we were America's first responders in terms of boots on the ground there. Uh, lots have been written about the, the folks that went further downrange into northern Afghanistan at the beginning of the war. Um, much of it true, some of it Hollywood, but a very special group of special operators and special warriors uh, that got the Taliban out of that country in 100 days and bin Laden in a cave. Mike, we appreciate the extra time that you've given to Veterans Radio today. We appreciate your service to the country, your continuing work with uh, DOD and all the things that you're doing. And, And again, thank you for spending some extra time with Veterans Radio today. I appreciate it, Jim. Thank you. So our goal at Veterans Radio is to tell you stories about uh, the military service, 
maybe about some things you wouldn't hear anywhere else, and we think this is certainly one of those stories. Uh, Mike came to our attention because CBS News uh, did a story about uh, Uzbekistan and K2. It was part of that public push to get uh, President Trump and Congress to focus on this issue and to help resolve it, thus getting the executive order and getting the study um, requirement into the uh, National Defense Act. So public pressure does make a difference. Hopefully you can continue to follow this issue but also be involved in similar toxic-based issues. There's a lot of them we mentioned. Um, <clears throat> burn pits is an obvious example. But we've talked to uh, here on Veterans Radio, and you can find it on our podcast at veteransradio.net. We've talked to bases uh, here in the United States, uh, Fort McGeorge, uh, Peace Air Force Base. Um, they're all over the place. Uh, and some of them are now closed, um, uh, where there's PFAS contamination or there's other toxic exposures. So um, it's important that we stay informed about this, that we bring it up with our congressmen and women when we bump into them in the district, uh, that we send emails to our senators and try to encourage people to recognize that the cost of defending the United States isn't just this year's budget, but it's also those things that uh, military men and women get exposed to, sometimes accidentally, um, that needs to be covered by the United States. You've got, you can't expect men and women to serve the country, go off to foreign lands, uh, be on bases that are contaminated, and then just be ignored. They have to have uh, medical coverage. They have to have disability uh, compensation when those sorts of things can get uh, uh, tied together. And nobody gets rich off any of this. This is just more about the uh, equity um, to compensate people for things that they've earned because of that uh, exposure. So we hope you found this interesting um, to get that first-hand eyewitness report on a base called K2 in a place you've never heard of probably in Uzbekistan. But it uh, really is kind of important, and we are glad we're able to bring you these kinds of stories. We certainly appreciate our sponsors who help us do this, such as nvbdc.org, and our uh, other sponsors, including our VSO sponsors. Those VSO sponsors include Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettle's Chapter 310 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423, the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, both in Ann Arbor. And if you'd like to be involved in sponsoring Veterans Radio, contact us. Write an email to dale at veteransradio.net. If you have a story idea, again, that's something we'd love to hear from you. If you've got that firsthand witness experience somewhere that you want to help get the word out about, send a story idea to dale at veteransradio.net. And I shouldn't give him all of the good story ideas, so you can send them to jim at veteransradio.net as well. Um, I always need a little help on these things. And we appreciate you spending time with us today. We always put up weekly podcasts on veteransradio.net. You can go to our podcast site that's there and uh, hear something new every week. Uh, every Tuesday we post, so we uh, would encourage you to listen in there as well for some stories that 
maybe are too long and don't uh, make their way to the public airways, but uh, we still think are pretty pretty darn interesting, and we think you you will too. Uh, as I said at the outset, I'm Jim Fossone. I'm a dis- veterans disability lawyer with Legal Help for Veterans. I've been a, a supporter and producer and host for Veterans Radio now for, geez, I don't know, uh, maybe 10 years. Not as long as Dale. He's the founder. But uh, glad to be here and supporting the project week after week. Um, so until next week, um, and we encourage you to come back next week, but until then... You are dismissed.